Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly bar and restaurant podcast. I am your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. We have Aaron Lyons from Dish Society coming up in a little bit, but first, I am joined this week by my good friends, Shanna Jones and Felice Sloan from Urban Swank. Ladies, welcome back. Shanna, how are you? I am fantastic. Felice, welcome. Hey, 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 hey. Ah, yes. Now I know that you're actually (laughs) here. Ladies, we have quite a bit to discuss, so I don't want to dawdle. Let's jump off with the news of the week, starting with what was the most popular story on Culture Map last week, which is the news that Cleburne's Cafeteria has reopened one and a half years after it was burned to the ground in a devastating fire. I noticed that they had some some practice services, some 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 uh, trial runs yeah. last week where they were giving away free food and there was an absolute frenzy line out the door. Let me let me ask what what I guess should be an obvious question, but have you eaten at Cleburne Cafeteria? I have eaten there. And my goal was to go on Friday when they opened officially. But after seeing, I'm like, there's no way. I'm not going to be waiting in those lines. So, yes, I'm a fan and, yes, I'm excited. What about you, Shan? I remember going many, many years ago with my family. I think it was like prime rib Sunday or something. And But literally since my adulthood, I don't recall going, but now since... They have reopened. Are they reopened or going to reopen this Friday? Was that they last Friday? Reopened. Last it Friday. It is open right now. Yeah. I'm like really more excited than I've ever been to get back in there and see what they've, you know, what, what I've missed over the last decade plus. Well, and they have updated a little bit. Uh, physically, the restaurant's a little larger. I think it's up to like 12,000 square feet, which is pretty enormous by restaurant standards. They've added beer and wine, which makes it somewhat more appealing as a dinner option. And most importantly, I think for day-to-day Cleburne diners, they now take credit cards. It yeah. was cash only. Right. Amen. That's the part that's important to me, the credit cards. Yes. The wine and the beer, honestly, to me, takes away from it a little bit because of the whole that family. cafeteria. Yeah. And then you're like, the beer and wine, it's just, I'm like, really? Like, even if I wanted wine, I would leave and go somewhere else and get it because it just doesn't fit. For me. Yeah, it's that it's a very family friendly Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's that Sunday family outing, cafeteria laid back. Yeah, not a lot of cafeterias around anymore. No. Right. So that's No. And and I have one friend who I'm not gonna shame by naming him right now. Shame. But he's a huge Luby's fan. And so I went to Luby's with him not long ago. It's fine. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a pretty good value for what it is. My recollection of Cleburne, I will admit it has been several years since I last ate mm-hmm. there, was that it was a little more expensive or, or noticeably more expensive and a little bit better. So I'm, I am curious to try it. I'm going to let that. We're, we're taping this uh, the week of Thanksgiving. I know that there's people are off work. Their school's out. Mm-hmm. They're going to be packing that place this week. Oh, yeah. I'm going to let that hype die down for another week or two, and then I'm going to. I'm going to sneak in like on a Tuesday afternoon at three o'clock and see what Cleveland's all about. 
And that whole credit card thing is going to increase the business a bit. I mean, there are people that will not, just for ease of, you know, <laughs> the whole process, people, they're going to get more people, I believe, because not only the beer and wine, but because that credit card situation. I mean, cash only is very limiting. Yeah, cash only is, is you know, basically school. nobody gets away with that anymore. But again, again, Cleburne's could pull that off. They did pull it off for how long? Before the fire, because... You expected it's just nostalgic and it's just one of those old school spots. So yeah. it feels like, I mean, they don't take credit cards. You, you kind of get into, maybe that's just me. Well, and, you know, we <laughs> were talking, right, Gil Hooley's does that. Right. You know, the Oyster Dive in San Leon, cash only. The original Hubcap Grill downtown. I mean, it's, it's a very short list of places. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. All right. <laughs> Uh, we have a lot of we have two big beer news items, uh, starting with at least chronologically in which the news came out that Buffalo Bayou Brewing Company is coming to Sawyer Yards. If you've been to Buffalo Bayou, you know that they're in a very cramped space uh, right off of I ten and TC Jester. They don't have a tap room. They don't have place for people to hang out. No AC. It's basically, no AC. <laughs> it's just a warehouse, which is fine for making beer. Uh, but not good if you want to take advantage of these changes in the laws in the state of Texas that allow breweries to sell beer to people for consumption at the brewery. Mm-hmm. So they're 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 going to leave that space. They're going to build a brand new, beautiful three story building in Sawyer Yards, right off of Washington Avenue. I, I mean, I I'm super excited for them. Uh, they've needed this yeah. to to stay competitive with. Mm-hmm. St. Arnold, Carbach, Eighth Wonder, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I'm excited. Like you said, I'm excited for them. I love um, all the places that you named, right, um, where you can go and it's an experience. It's more you get the beer, but then it's it's an experience. So I think that um, this is awesome news for them. Yeah, especially with all the other beer gardens that are popping up. There's going to be some really serious competition to get there. And I'm not sure about you guys, but I'm a huge fan of – their stouts and what they do, and they're so creative. So just to have that pair with somewhere to go and chill out and feel relaxed and comfortable with AC is really going to set them apart. And it's a huge facility, and from what, I, what I've seen about it, it's going to be pretty legit. Yeah, 200-seat restaurant, uh, outdoor patio, third floor roof deck with a view of the downtown yeah, skyline. Yeah, that's going to be player. It's right a there. big step up for Buffalo Bayou. The one thing that I am sort of curious about is that their beers are a little bit quirky, right? Yeah. Their their owner, Rasul, told me they've made 70 beers in less than six years of operations. Are they ready to step up to the big time? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people that go for quirky beer. So, what, I mean, what what exactly are you saying, Eric? What, yeah. what, what are you saying? What are you, what are you trying to infer here? I, I'm saying that if you look at the popular breweries around town, they have one or two easy drinking kind of signature beers and then they can do the quirky stuff on the side i get what you're saying okay yes i see it i don't know that 1836 which is kind of their signature beer is that is that equivalent of a a dome foam or a bombshell blonde or a yeah lawnmower that yeah. it can sustain but but you know clearly i mean clearly i'm not i'm not looking at their sales i'm not um I'm not an investor that's that's backing this <laughs> project. So, so I'm just wondering. So it's more just like in my head, I just wonder. 
So they're going to have to pay. So exactly what you said, they're going to have to um, make investors happy. <laughs> they're going to have to pay for the new space. So they may have to make go from quirky to a little more serious, right? Like they kind of go reverse of what they're doing and, and kind of go with, with what you're saying, be able to compete on a higher level and get a more sustainable beer of substance. Right, because I think it's it's kind of one thing to do, you know, 10 or 15 different variations on, on their Great White Buffalo, their Wit Beer. Or their Cowbell. That I really enjoy, right. Yeah, there's a million yeah. more Cowbell <laughs> more cowbell variations. But I think it's, you know, now it's kind of time to, you know, they've had their fun and, they've, and they can still do that quirky stuff and, and they can even expand their barrel aging program and stuff like that. But I also think they need to, like, really make sure the core beers are dialed in so that they have a, a good answer for... What makes this place special? What is a Buffalo Bayou beer? beer? Yeah. And how do we how do we take that next step to get to the the next level in production? So maybe a Buffalo Bayou beer is that quirkiness and the creativity that sets them apart. I feel like, yeah, you can do what everyone else is doing. I think you should have a staple beer, but I like them because every time I'm presented with them, whether it's a, a partnership they're doing with the Maya or whoever. It's always something new and different. I'm like, ooh, it's you're looking forward to whatever the gingerbread stout that's coming out. Like, I feel like that is their selling point. Yeah, that quirky accessibility. Yeah. that's what keeps you coming back. I agree. For me, no, no, I think yeah. that's a good. I think that's a good answer to my criticism. So. <laughs> yeah. All right, and then our other big beer news of the week: St. Arnold has finally announced their plans to build a beer garden next to their brewery on Lyons Avenue. This is not, it's not news exactly. They've been talking about this for a long time, for at least two years, maybe even a little bit longer than that. So let me put it to you like this. Now that you've seen the plans, are you excited about what they've got going on? I'm so excited. It's so, it's beautiful. So major. And it's, it's like you said, it's been needed. They've talked about it. I am super excited. It's beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And people already load up the brewery today. <laughs> I mean, they're, you know, the tasting times and the tasting room and, and, and what they did with their with their culinary, you know, program a few years back. I mean, I'm it looks it looks really, really nice and just to see I mean, it's huge. Yep. Just yeah. the seating area. I mean, what is it, twenty eight thousand square feet or something uh, like that? Some crazy thing. Yeah. I mean the tap room by itself. Right. The tap room on a Saturday is an absolute madhouse. Yeah. Is anyone? Yeah. Anyway, like now. Right. Yeah. So they need the capacity. They need the seating. And this German style indoor outdoor beer hall. Yeah. Again, with its own view of the downtown skyline from a mm -hmm. different angle than what uh, Buffalo Bayou is going to give people. Yeah, I think it's really cool. And I like this St. Arnold Society that they're putting together. You pay them a thousand bucks. And they will give you a pewter mug engraved with your name on it for when you visit the beer hall and one free beer every day for life. I feel like I could make that up pretty fast if I threw down a thousand dollars. Yeah, I think it's gonna be a lot of people throwing down a thousand <laughs> to beer. get that. It's it's yeah. It's so going if you... to be it's super cute, cute idea, and I can't wait to see all probably within a month. Yeah. 
to see all the pewter mugs. Like, I want to okay. see how many people sign up for the program. And I wonder, like, I don't know if they have the details out there yet, but I wonder if it's like, if you don't use your beer for that day, do you lose it? Or is it like, can you carry over to the next day? And then like, you can go on, on the 30th of each month and just like, just go they ham on your third. I can already answer <laughs> that. Because they would be liable. You know, yeah, it's like, like you come drive? in once a month you and you're Uber? like, yeah. Right, I, no, I just I just wonder what the details are. Yeah, I haven't seen the fine print. I suspect it is use it or lose it. <laughs> I'm just saying that would be like a party at the end of the month. Every month for me, I'd be like, yeah, 30 friends come along. Maybe it's only for you. Maybe it's for your friends, but fun right, nonetheless. Guest passes. But also the idea that, that people who join this are going to get a preview of the space. They're going to get a construction tour. They're going to be invited to the grand opening party. You get that that mug. That yeah, with really your cool. name on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be pretty cool. You know, one of the things that Brock Wagner has always talked about is that he wants to build a community around St. Arnold. And they have done that very well with all the events that they do, the one-pot showdown, the pub crawls. This is kind of the next level version of that, I think. And it gives, you know, so that when the beer hall opens sometime next year, there are people who are literally like financially invested in its success. Mm -hmm. yep. A lot more concerts will probably be there because they started, I think they did a couple of concerts recently. Mm -hmm. it'll, be, it'll be a nice little place for Oktoberfest. Yes. Sometime around. All right. And then uh, one other news item I want to note is that Grant Pinkerton, the pitmaster owner of Pinkerton's Barbecue in the Heights, has been named to the Forbes 30 for 30 list, which is their ranking of up-and-coming personalities in a number of different fields. He's in very good company with this. Uh, Jose Altuve is the only other Houstonian. Uh, Aisha Curry, the cookbook author and future owner of a restaurant in Houston, is one of the other food people on this list. Uh, I noticed one of the founders of Poke Works, which is the... Yeah. They just, they just opened near the Heights, is, yeah. is on this list. I mean, it puts Grant in really good company. It's awesome opportunity. It's fantastic. Yeah, you guys are Pinkerton's fans. Yes. Yep. It's so funny. Once he won that, I have a video um, where I was in there one day and I went and watched the video. And I've been waiting to put the video <laughs> up. And I'm like, this is so, like, he's him preparing the brisket yeah. and just finessing it and cutting it. And I'm like, this is so well-deserved beyond the brisket. He's a really good, he's a great personality. He's a really good guy. Yeah, and he's a he's a he's been doing it for a very long time. Like yeah. he's been fully vested in his love for barbecue for I don't know since he was, he was a, a teenager. Kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, he's twenty eight, yeah. but he's been <laughs> he's been cooking barbecue for people since he was a teenager. He he got started hosting his own tailgates for University of Texas football games. I think maybe that's what most impresses me about Grant. Not that not that I'm that much older than he is, but that he he is definitely like more mature and more focused than, than I was at 28 uh, than I think most 28 year olds are. And he's been very successful, mm -hmm. earned a spot on the Texas monthly top 50. Uh, he'd only been open since December. So that's, that's pretty impressive. And he has that kind of old school devotion to the craft of barbecue. Yeah. Doing things in a very traditional way, offset smokers. There's not a lot of that in Houston, you know, hand trimmed, seasons everything very carefully and then the other thing that the the forbes article cited which i know we've talked about on the show some is that he he played a for a for a relatively small restaurant he played a pretty big role in in harvey relief i know he fed a whole bunch mm -hmm. of first responders national guardsmen constables 
evacuees, whatever. He he uh, he really stepped up, and I think that's another thing that kind of brought him to the attention of. Yeah, he was like one of the first ones, right? Like he. Like when he saw it, mm-hmm. the article, I didn't even know this until the article noted it where he stepped up. You know, he prepared like I need to step up my meat orders. I need to step up everything because he already knew yeah. that he was going to need to do his part to help his city. And, you know, you just got to you got to love him just for that, because yeah. a lot of people not to take away from what other people did. But he he knew, OK, my city's going to need me. I need to prepare. And remember how how excited we were when we saw him at the barbecue fest and we got that video of him and all those gators and we were like, Ooh, are we going to, are we going to try these alligators? And it was just like, he was doing something fun too. So even though he's kind of the purest with barbecue, as far as his spicing and how he seasons and trims and all of that in preparation, it's still that, it's still that really fun side and that youthfulness of like, Oh yeah, let me just put some, let me put some gators on the, on, on the, yeah, on the pit and see how that, thinker. yeah, just that fun stuff too. So he, you get a mix of both. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's to his credit. He, yeah, I think that's, and I think that kind of describes the atmosphere at, at Pinkerton's Barbecue. It's, it's pretty. It's a pretty traditional looking space, but it's got the bar with the cocktails and the wine. It caters to both. It's, a, it's a fun spot to watch sports. I mean, I, I watched at least one Astros playoff game there. Okay. So he's created something pretty special in, yeah. in not a lot of time. Definitely good for him. It's a it's a wonderful accomplishment to be recognized at that level amongst those other individuals. So kudos, hands down, and congratulations. All right. Very good. That does it for the News of the Week. We will be right back with our Restaurants of the Week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? Okay. For Restaurants of the Week, we're going to do something a little bit off the board. We, unfortunately, did not coordinate this well we did not dine together at a new restaurant that's poor planning on my part but felice you and i did take a little road trip uh this last weekend to louis miller barbecue in taylor texas and i know i'm saying miller it's spelled like mueller and i think that's one of the first Mm -hmm. that's one of those like barbecue that's one of those barbecue mistakes that people make if you pronounce it if you pronounce k-r-e-u-z and lockhart as Cruise instead of Kreitz. It's like you know this is this is what separates the the barbecue uh, devotees from the uh, Johnny Come Latelys. I think. But Fee, we had a pretty good meal at Louis Miller. Uh, actually, we had a very good meal at Louis Miller. And I just was wondering what you thought about that experience. Well, I first of all, I had to be rolled out of there, right? Because it's I, <laughs> literally. When we're talking to Wayne and saying, oh, yeah, we or we're going to get some of this. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me, you know, because we were very specific on the things we were going to get. Then he comes out with an entire what I called pre Thanksgiving barbecue spread. And it was all barbecue. Right. Like it was for a family of 20. (laughs) Right. We were we were five people. We usually had enough food for 12. Easy, easy. And then it was a couple of sides, which, you know, we say we never do couple of sides and then he put the damn corn oop sorry about you that. Can say that okay put the damn cornbread on there that none of us ever tasted and we're like okay it's cornbread and we lost our minds so i was fat fat full and very very happy that day yeah i so just to just to be a little bit more specific uh we let Wayne Miller, the owner of Louis Miller, order for us. 
and he knows he knows some of the people we were with. He knows us, so he he buried us. Uh, two beef ribs, <laughs> uh, a decent amount of brisket, a whole bunch of burn ends, two kinds of pork ribs, both baby back and St. Louis. Their regular sausage, their jalapeno sausage, uh, a heaping helping of both potato salad and coleslaw, and then turkey. oh turkey. Yeah, he oh, was like, yeah. I want to try the turkey. So he gave us somewhere between a half a pound and a full pound. Just of turkey. A, yeah, just a little bit just of to bite, taste, just to taste, just to, just yeah. to see what it was like. Yeah, uh, which was way more food than we could responsibly. We all left with leftovers. But I think the the cornbread is interesting because it's new. Louis Miller is one of the oldest barbecue joints in Texas. It is the only Texas barbecue joint to have been at the top of the Texas monthly rankings every year that they have done it since the 70s, right? They don't do it every year, but they do it every four or five years. And he's still innovating. I mean, it's crazy to me that Wayne is still like tweaking the menu. He's like, oh yeah, here's this new sauce that had like a smoky chipotle thing going on. Here's this new cornbread because he said people were asking them for cornbread. He's working on a chili recipe. I think, you know, if you want to know why uh, Chris Reed, the barbecue columnist for the Chronicle, refers to Louis Miller as the Cathedral of Smoke, it's not just because the walls are smoke-stained and it's been there a long time. It's because it continues to, in some sense, lead the way for what Central Texas barbecue is and should be. I totally agree. It's and then it's an it's a complete experience when you go. Mm-hmm. You do have the smoke stained walls and people. Okay, okay, is that done? Did someone do that? And you're like, no. <laughs> do you go see all the the car the business cards that are there and they're smoked out? Do you can <laughs> distinguish those that have been there for twenty plus years from the ones that have been there for five months to five years? You know, you get that experience, um, the meat, the process. Wayne, the the staff, they've been there forever. So it's an entire experience. And then throw in there, you get the meats. And then he's throwing some innovation in there, right? So like, I just, it's I just, crazy. I just kind of have one question. I'm, I mean, I didn't bring, nobody brought me a rib back. I don't have a link. I didn't get a corner of cornbread. I'm just saying, you know, y'all could have brought me one rib. Just yeah. one rib. So there was really no <laughs> cornbread left. No, the cornbread got demolished. <laughs> It was demolished. Um, ribs. No kernel or nothing. No, just. I don't know. My leftovers went to my mother. So you're going to have to fight. I'm just saying, guys. I mean, come on. Hook a girl up. I mean, you, you got to come on the trip. Next that's time. what I said. You decided know, to go I to know. a concert over barbecue. So and look, I, I, got mean, the, I got the short end of the deal here. <laughs> clearly. Well, you got to see Ice Cube and Scarface. I did. I did. Right, right, right. I did. But the platter of barbecue was very mouthwatering and um, definitely could have <laughs> could have gotten very happy with some of that. So, yeah, worth the trip. Uh, you know, if you're in Austin, especially uh, Taylor, Texas, which is where Louis Miller is, is not that far. It, from Houston, it's a it's a solid uh, it's a solid two ish hours right. to Taylor, but uh, certainly, I mean I I'm going to call it my favorite Texas barbecue joint. Hmm. I don't I don't I'm not going to argue about best. I think that's a that's a tricky thing to quantify. Um, but excellent barbecue, wonderful experience, and mandatory. If you, I, I, I mean I, you know, it's not just me sort of saying this, but you know, I, I feel sort of silly, like adding my ranking to this because it's so acclaimed. But if you need, if if I'm the push that gets at least right. one person listening to this to go to Louis Miller for the first time, then I feel good about it. 
Well, I would say I would agree with you. If you're a person that says you are a barbecue person and you love barbecue, you have to go at least so you can have an opinion, right? And then be able to debate us and say it's good, it's great, it's your favorite, it's your best. That's what you have to do. So I would agree with you. You have to go. All right. And then, Felice, I know that you dined at Theodore Rex, Justin Yu's replacement for Oxheart. Shanna, were you there too? I was not there. But I am uh, living vicariously through the um, delicious mouthwatering photos, and I'm excited to hear about how that potato-looking delicious thingy majig was. <laughs> Sophie, what did you think of Theodore Rex? Um, I thought when I walked in, you know, you still have the same kind of appeal. It looks the same. It's the same feel. I got there, of course, at 5 o'clock because they reserve one-third of the restaurant for walk-ins every day. Um, and the day I went was the first day that it filled up. So I think that's kind of cool. Then the rest is reservations. But the cool thing is they have a space next door for that they can open up for you can have wine and stuff and sit and wait because there's really no waiting area. Um, so I thought that was great. I don't know if they had that before because I think before no, that's was already, new. That's yeah. new. Okay. So I thought that was amazing. Um, we know them, if you went to Oxheart before, we know them for amazing vegetables. They made for us when we went, I wanted to become a vegetarian <laughs> right. because the vegetables were really that good. And I, I I had probably five or six things and the vegetables still yeah. stand out like above everything else. What else did I want to say? Oh, and I and the prices, the price point. What they're trying to do and make it more approachable. I hear that they're going to be rotating the menu quite frequently. I got the three, let's see, three, four, three glasses of wine under $100. Because between from five to six, half price wine. So I would have never, Oxheart, that's... No, you were <laughs> you not were getting never. out of Oxheart for under 100 bucks a person. Well, under 100, yeah. Yeah, I feel like two people could eat at T-Rex for about a hundred bucks if you're kind of precise about your ordering and you don't drink very much. I agree. Right. So is the menu a good balance, unlike Oxheart, a good balance between veggies and non-veggie? Is it kind of similar? What's the balance of kind of the protein dishes? I mean, I'm curious about that fish dish that you had because I had that, or I had a version of that when I went and just frankly, it was, I thought it was kind of bland. It didn't really so it's funny. I read your what you. It looks like they changed it, right? Because you had a sauce. It's um right now they steam it. They steam the flounder. We're talking about a guff flounder. They steam it in um, a collard green, and then they have some more um, Japanese turnip greens and all those different things. So definitely, the fish would be kind of bland without that, right? Um, but the flavors. And I was talking to my waitress. The collard greens and vegetables are the best. She said some people leave that. I said you probably need to tell them that mm. that's they they that's not the way it's presented. It looks like it's garnished. Right. That's the point. The it's not garnished. That's that's part of the flavor. <laughs> it's part of the flavor. So it was actually it was amazing. It was amazing. And then the, they do that potato dish that's roasted in that's, chicken fat. See, oh, that was by far. I I would have. If I'd known I needed to take some bread, had you told me or someone told me how good it was, I would put bread in my purse and sopped it up. It, the, the, it's so good. 
What about that mushroom dish that you were dipping? That what what was it dipped in? There was like some oyster mushroom. It, it was creme fraiche, and okay. they just put like a lot of seasoning. It was supposed to be like their version of a chip and dip. Yeah, it was cool. Good. And then I went to Lucienne last week. I know that you guys had gone previously. We had talked. We talked about it the last time you guys were on the show. So I don't want to. I don't linger on it too much, but I I will say. I feel like it's starting to find itself a little bit. Okay. Um, I thought the the quality of the food that I had was very good. I still think the experience needs a little bit of tweaking. You know, they're, they're having a problem with their lighting, so it was very bright. Like, it was just very... It, 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 which makes for pretty pictures, but but is not great on an experience standpoint. But I do agree with something you said, Felice, last time you were here, which is that it's it feels very much like a hotel restaurant. Enter through the lobby, go up a flight of stairs to the elevator, or go up go up a level in the elevator, and then kind of walk past the reservation desk to get to the restaurant. It's a little bit hidden away, and so I just, you know, I just wonder if it's going to be successful in terms of capturing people off the street. But I, I will say, I thought the quality of the food was very good, and Chef Jose Hernandez, who's, who's running that kitchen, said that that he's really proud of their brunch menu. So I think that's going to be next time I go to Lucienne, it's going to be for brunch. We should make it a date. We should go for brunch. We should round up a group, get a group and go for brunch. Mimosas and Bloody Marys and so forth. Well, I really hope that it it does do well. I mean, chef is a great chef. We've been following him as we said for many, many years. So, you know, I really hope, although that's great that brunch becomes something, but everything else is superior in itself too. So you kind of want it to be more than just brunch being great. Yeah, we had a fantastic lamb tartare. Uh, there's that that crepe with the cauliflower filling and the and the cheese sauce. I can't say enough about it. And of course, you know, Chef Jose's desserts yeah, are always incredible. So that, that tartare tan is is, I mean, like I would just go for that. Like just just if you do nothing else, go to Lucienne and and have a glass of wine and and knock down that. Maybe they'll have to start doing events or really showcasing the restaurant outside of it being a part of the hotel. Because right now I feel like it doesn't have its own existence and people know it as the hotel's restaurant. Yeah, and I think the hotel is is sort of, you know, it opened pretty quietly there. I, I have seen any number of media members on Instagram that got a free night stay there. So they're they're working on getting the word out. It's just a, it's just a process. I think they're going to be okay. All right. Well, ladies, thank you. Thanks, Eric. Thank you, Eric. We can always follow you on all platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, Urban Swank. And of course, UrbanSwank.com updated all the time with not just food stuff, lifestyle, health, beauty, fitness. Am I missing anything? Travel. Travel. Cool stuff. Swanky stuff. You know. (laughs) (laughs) All right, y'all. Thank you. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Happy Happy Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, everyone. Bye. All right. And we'll be right back with Aaron Lyons. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? Our interview this week is brought to you by our friends at 8th Wonder Brewery, one of my favorite local breweries, conveniently located in East Downtown. I mean, you can find 8th Wonder on Tap Walls and on store shelves all over the city. But there is something really special about visiting the brewery, whether it's for a soccer game or a baseball game. 
you know, certainly with the local baseball team in the playoffs, it's, it's going to be an exciting fall here in Houston, and there's really no place better to go before a game than Eighth Wonder Brewery. You can have a couple of pints, maybe AstroTurf, their dry-hopped cream ale that's new and in stores, or maybe their Side Hustle, which is a barrel-aged version of Haterade, their Goza. And, of course, one of the fun things about going to Eighth Wonder's Brewery is that you have the Eatsy Boys food truck there. They have a new menu full of all sorts of new things to try. And just recently, they added David Attic's 36-foot-tall statues of the Beatles. John, Paul, George, and Ringo rendered in concrete in their Sgt. Pepper gear. And if you're a real Beatles fan, you'll notice that they're not positioned as they would have been on stage. I think that may be done just to infuriate hardcore Beatles fans, or maybe it's an accident, I don't know. But definitely check out 8th Wonder, have a beer, have a bite from the Eatsy Boys, and enjoy this uh, fall weather that we all know is right around the corner. Thank you to 8th Wonder, and here is our interview of the week. I'm joined this week by Aaron Lyons, the founder and CEO of Dish Society, a neighborhood restaurant that recently opened its third location in Memorial, joining its original location in Briar Grove and its second location in Katy. Aaron, welcome to What's Eric Eating. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. Uh, why don't we just kind of start a little bit at the beginning? I mean, you opened the first dish, what, in 2013, I want to say? 14. Almost, uh, almost four years in January. It'll be four years. How would you say the concept has evolved from kind of your original vision for it to where you're at now? Um, I think, I think our original, what we opened was very close to the vision. And, um, as we began to, uh, get more experience and, uh, open another store, we, we learned from a lot of that. And then, uh, we also had more resources to be able to do some of the things, um, you know, that we weren't able to do with the first location and, uh, you know, opening a restaurant's really, really expensive and opening a restaurant in an eight story building like we did. The first one is even more expensive, uh, because of all of the duct work and whatnot. I'll spare you the details, but it's just a lot more expensive. So we, we spent most of our money on stuff that no one can see and, uh, had to get pretty creative with, um, stretching the, the last, uh, remainder of the budget. Uh, so I've, you know, as we open stores and, and we've been successful, we've been able to sort of invest in things that, um, that make us better and more efficient and, you know, uh, having better benefits and better things like that for the staff is just all sort of, um, helps out. So I would say that's the biggest change is just having more opportunities to do more of the things that we wanted. Yeah. I mean, certainly from an aesthetics perspective, the new Memorial location is, your best looking location. Correct. Yes. Is that, was that because it, it fulfills sort of your vision for what you want this society to be? Or did you feel like you had to fancy things up in the ritzy neighborhood? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, every location that we're going to have is probably going to be 75% uh, sort of consistent with the other ones. And then there's going to, we're going to leave some room for some personality that's dependent on the neighborhood I mean, our Heights location that we open next year will be um, not probably as polished as the Memorial location. It'll be a little grittier. Um, it'll be more bar focused. Uh, we'll have some games and we'll have some, you know, dartboards and things like that. Um, just given the clientele, it supports it, right? So Memorial, you know, um, you've got to think about the uh, the clientele there 
and the families and, and sort of cater to them in some way. But it was also a lot closer to the vision that I had from an aesthetics perspective. And the, the, a lot of the things we did at Memorial were things that we couldn't afford to do in the first two because we were still very, very budget conscious and scrapping. So like, what are some of the things that you can't afford to do now that you couldn't do originally? Um, I think from a, you know, a lot of the kitchen stuff, you know, we're able to sort of invest in nicer things. The bar you notice that at Memorial is sort of separate. Um, you know, we are, we're not, you know, scouring uh, auctions and, and Craigslist for used equipment and furniture anymore. Um, so, you know, we're able to you know, actually get like decent tables and chairs and patio furniture and heaters and, you know, just stuff like that. Um, so it's, it's, it's a lot of detailed stuff, I guess, is what I would say. Um, and, and things that make life easier for our staff. Uh, you know, for instance, at Memorial, we have handheld POS uh, control uh, systems. So it's almost, they're like little iPads and those aren't cheap. And, um, you know, but that's something that makes us better and more efficient and, um, is a better, it's better for the guest experience as well. So a lot of the investments that, that aid in that are, are things that, um, you know, are nicer to have for sure. And then what's the, what's the experience like at Memorial? I know that neighborhood was kind of on the edge of some of the Harvey flooding. I know, Union Kitchen that's right across Memorial Drive from you took some water in. How's the neighborhood responding? Does it does it feel like people are, are happy that you're you're open now? I think so. Yeah, you know that area was uh, was decimated. Honestly, it was really bad. Um, luckily, the the where we are in the development was you know it's several feet. Um, it was graded several feet higher than sort of everything else in that area, so it didn't take on any water. Uh, but it did make it difficult to get to and you know they had memorial closed off they had gessner closed off they had the beltway closed off so um everyone in that area was sort of either on an island and couldn't go anywhere or they were evacuated and they couldn't get back to their to their houses um and you know they just finished a few weeks ago kind of picking up a lot of the trash and the couches and a lot of the stuff that were sort of along memorial and some of the surrounding areas um I do think that it's starting to retor- return to, to normalcy. Uh, I try to talk to a lot of the guests, and there's still a lot of guests that are, you know, hey, you know we're staying with our, our folks in spring. We just came down to check on the house, you know, but we live, we live down the street, and, you know, you, you hear a lot of that. So there's still a lot of folks that haven't, you know, moved back. Um, but I feel like the spirits are high. I feel like um, that neighborhood and that area uh, we're, we're being received very well. I think they're very happy to have sort of a neighborhood kind of place um, that's very casual and, and family friendly. So, um, yeah, the, the feedback's been great and, and the, the, the guests have been awesome. So it's been it's been good so far. I think one of the things that's always impressed me about Dish Society is that you do a, a pretty heavy amount of local sourcing and you, you cite the farms and the ranches that you uh, utilize on your menu one of the things that, you know, if you go to a, a farmer's market and you buy some of this produce, you know, it's, it's a little more expensive than a grocery store. And, and, you know, the one that people always tag is like the, you know, six bucks, a, six bucks a dozen for eggs. It's like kind of that, like, Oh, I want to buy, I want to buy good eggs. I don't love paying that much money. Um, but I think what I like about dishes is that you guys have kept your food relatively affordable while utilizing some of these ingredients. And so I was just, I'm just curious about, how do you balance that? No, that's a great, that's a million dollar question. Right. And I mean, that ultimately is going to dictate our success is our ability to do that. 
it's much harder to deal with, you know, dozens of suppliers than it is to just get a truck from Cisco three times a week, you know, like most, most other restaurants do. So uh, we do have a full-time supplier relations coordinator on staff. And she's sort of responsible for maintaining those relationships with uh, our current partners and finding new partners as we grow. Um, you know, some some of our smaller partners, it's harder for them to kind of keep up with our demand as we as we grow and, and not even just open new stores. But then sales are growing at our existing stores, too. And so we're needing more product. Right. We're, we're growing our catering business. There's a lot of those things. So we need more of that uh, that product. So she's sort of solely responsible for that. She goes to the farmer's markets. She um, meets with vendors and you know, things like that. So, you know, one example that I can give you that is that perfect question is, you know, we use 44 farms for all of our steak product and, you know, on our farmer's plate. Uh, so we have, we have steak tacos and we use an inside skirt, you know, uh, for, for that. And it's sliced and it's pretty easy. Um, but those tacos are still $13, right? It's two tacos, it's two steaks tacos. So a, lo- a lot of people, you know, you compare that to, you know, a torchies or, or something like that. It might seem like a lot, but you know, it is a higher quality product. Um, for our farmer's plate, where you can pick a protein in two sides, we actually worked with 44 Farms uh, with Jason, um, sort of the local sales guy, and, and he brought us some samples, and they really helped us. We said, hey, look, here's the problem we're having. When somebody comes in and they want a steak with you know sweet potatoes and Brussels sprouts, they don't want this thin piece of inside skirt on the plate. It just doesn't look good. So they brought us some samples. We worked together in our kitchen, and they brought us a chuck eye, which is very similar to a ribeye. It kind of looks the same. It tastes the same. There's marbling. Um, there's a good fat content to it, and it's a lot more flavorful, and it's thicker, and it just looks better on a plate. And we were able to to get that at a very reasonable price so that we didn't have to really raise our prices to the, the customer but but serve a better product. Um, so th- those are sort of the opportunities that we – that we do. Um, our partners are really awesome. You know, we talk to them and we, and we say, Hey, like, this is what we need. You know, um, we, we source our desserts and our baked goods from petite sweets. So, you know, we're talking to them about, you know, how can we get 16 slices out of this cake? And, you know, we want, we, we don't want to sell a slice of cake for $10 because that's not who we are. Right. I mean, that doesn't fit within our right, price. For, right. For petite sweets that, that, that may play at starfish. Right. Exactly. But not, it's not going to work. For it, a not society. a dish society. Right. When your salad is 10 bucks and then you're going to spend 10 bucks on a, on a slice of cake, it doesn't work. So I said, you know, we have to be able to s- sell the slice of cake for $6. So what is that going to look like? And it's got a, it can't look like a sliver. can't be like a small cupcake. Right. And so we work with them and, and, and we find a solution. And so I think that is why we've been successful by able, you know, being able to do that and sourcing even more things locally now than we did when we opened, um, because we're able to go to our partners and say, Hey, like, how can we make this work? You know, I can't charge $26 for the salad. So let's, let's talk about what we can do. And maybe it's, let's grow a different varietal of lettuce. Let's do this, let's do that or whatever, maybe use this vegetable instead of this vegetable. And then we're able to sort of still achieve our goals without having to have, you know, really high prices. Well, and I think the other thing is, given your your growth and your size, is you can commit to, I mean, maybe like a whole farm's crop of something. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we've we've become, you know, I know for I know for half of our suppliers, we're definitely their largest, you know, account, um, and because they still can't, some of them still can't, you know, contribute everything that we need because they have sort of obligations to other customers that they've had sort of along the way, and I totally respect and understand that. Um, but you know, some of the things that we do is we're willing to invest in our suppliers and we're willing to commit to things. And, you know, we've even gone so far as to, 
essentially pre-purchased things that allowed our uh, partners to go get bank loans based on our commitment, you know, to buy that stuff and be able to expand their operations. And so that's the other thing we do. You know, we go talk to Mike Atkinson and we say, hey, Mike, and this was, you know, a year ago, hey, we're going to open up Memorial. And uh, this is what our, this is what our, you know, our orders are going to look like next year. We are going to need so many strawberries. It's going to blow your <laughs> so mind. So many sweet potatoes and so many strawberries. So then, you know, what Mike does is he looks at his sort of current rotation in, in his crops and he says, okay, well, you know what? I could probably grow fewer radishes and more sweet potatoes because I know I'm going to sell all of the, I know how much I'm going to sell, right? So we have those conversations early on and that's part of what our supplier relations coordinator does is she's always ahead of those things. And um, we're, you know, as we roll into our sort of winter and spring menu now, you know, we already know sort of what vegetables we're going to have. Our suppliers already know what we're going to start ordering from them and, and things like that as well. So it's really just staying ahead of it and having just conversations. And, and, and we, you know, they're partners, you know, they're, they are part of our business and we rely on them just like they rely on us. And so, um, you know, I think when you have that kind of a relationship, it's, it's really easy to make things happen. You know, the other thing that Dish Society does that, that a lot of restaurants have tried with varying degrees of success is weekday breakfast <laughs> that that's like you know i mean it's hard i'm not gonna i'm not gonna cite everybody but but you know certainly weights and measures gave that a shot for like six months when they first opened they couldn't make it work what is the secret to a successful weekday breakfast service patience um you know i would say six months you know i think had they stuck with it i, I think you got to give it at least a year um, I mean, we still get people all the time, you know, that come in for brunch and, and, or even just dinner or a different day part. And they're like, oh, wow, you guys do breakfast during the weekend too, you know, and they're, they're still amazed by that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's about sort of building yourself, building that brand, educating the guest about that. Um, you know, we, we try to have our servers, um, talk to guests at night when they're in for dinner and remind them that, that we do have breakfast in the mornings um, and things like that. We put little, you know, subtle things around the restaurant too, to remind people, but it's about patience. I mean, you know, you, you start even at San Felipe, right? Our sales essentially in, in going into our, this is our fourth year, have doubled every single year for breakfast. Like if you just take that day part, they've just doubled every single year. And, and it's, it's really about, you know, being, persistent and patient and it and it is very hard and for us you know we already have a lot of those people in the building to begin with getting ready for lunch and so you know there's not a lot of incremental sort of labor and and you know resources that have to be you know added to it um, but it is new menu i mean it is you know a whole new uh, different menu so you've got you know eggs and you got things pancakes and things you don't serve during lunch so there is a transition there but um, it does support our brunch, and then our brunch supports our weekday breakfast. So um, we knew we were going to do brunch from the get-go. And, you know, when I looked at sort of other fast casual restaurants, many of whom don't do breakfast and then in turn don't do brunch, they're just they're leaving a lot on the table. I mean, when you're leasing, you know, 3,500 square feet in Class A, you're paying a lot in rent. Like, you need to maximize that. And, I mean, let's be honest, eggs and pancakes have a really good margin. Yeah, if they do, I mean, you can't sell them for a lot of money because they're they're kind of cheap commodity things to begin with. But people love breakfast, and breakfast, if you look nationally from an industry perspective, in the restaurant industry, breakfast is the day part that's growing the fastest. There's a lot of people eating out for breakfast now on a Tuesday where they wouldn't, you know, of otherwise. Right, and I, I think the interesting thing 
it's like we we crave novelty at dinner. Right. Right. I'm always always trying something new, always looking yeah. for the new thing. Breakfast is the opposite. Right. Yep. Whatever whatever someone's breakfast order is, it is day. the same thing every day. <laughs> and everywhere they go, too. Yeah. And I'm and I'm the same. I eat breakfast every day at our restaurants. Uh, and I get the same thing. I'm an eggs, bacon, and toast guy, you know? I'll order the pork belly hash. I'll order, you know, the French toast bites for my son, uh, and I'll do – and I always try stuff, and I always try the grits. Every day I go and I try the grits, um, and, I, and I do that. But I'm, a, I'm an eggs and bacon kind of guy, and if I'm in a different city or if I'm anywhere else, I, I order the same breakfast everywhere I go, sort of regardless. And, and I'm not surprised that you're doubling because breakfast, breakfast customers are very loyal, right? They Once they find that dish at their spot – you got them That's for a it. long time. Yeah, and you'll see you'll see a ton of regulars for breakfast. Uh, a lot of meetings. There's a lot of people that will come there, and that's that's their meeting spot. You know, at San Felipe, you'll see a lot of guys in suits because of all the oil and gas companies sort of around um, our location there, and they have their their meeting there. They read the the paper and have coffee and have their meetings and move on. And then sort of an hour later, you get all the moms that just dropped their kids off from school, and then they come in and get the you know vanilla lattes and and chat with their girlfriends. And so you see the same people every single – you see a lot of the same people and, and familiar faces, and so you know you're doing something right. Um, and I eat there every day, so I, I'm a good um, sort of quality check, and, I, and I'm a good barometer of sort of how things are going. So. And then you, you alluded earlier you are opening a fourth location in the Heights. I think from my perspective, you know, you went into Tanglewood Briar Grove, you, you went to Katy, and, and now you're in Memorial – um, three neighborhoods that I would say are relatively underserved in terms of at least the style of restaurant mm-hmm. that Dish Society is. Um, I don't think that's true for the Heights. Yeah, no, I would agree with you. Um, you know, look, I think the Heights is a market that we, it's our first inner loop site, right? Like it's crazy to think that we, we don't really have any presence inside the loop. So there's still a lot of people that, don't know about us or haven't eaten with us, you know, unless they happen to be in the Galleria area or, or their, you know, their parents live out in Katie's, you know, <laughs> something like that. There's a lot of people that, that just don't go, you know, outside the loop. And so it's a great opportunity for us. It's a great project. I love the location. Um, and I think, you know, look, there's a handful of places that are, you know, kind of similar to what we're doing, but I still think that we can hold our own and, and we're unique enough in that, uh, in that environment that people still want us. And, you know, what I'll tell you is if you look at our, you know, our location here down the street on San Felipe, uh, probably half of our to-go business is going to the Heights from like Uber Eats. If you look at the heat map, there's a lot of people in that area that are ordering food from us. Um, so we know that uh, they want it. They know, we know that, you know, we resonate there, you know, to some degree. And so that, that's interesting. Um, it's a place that I always wanted to be. You know, I think, you know, after we opened San Felipe, the Katie project just sort of came up in a way that it was, you know, it was, we were able to uh, basically take over a lease and get into that space for a lot less money than, than building, you know, from scratch. And it was just, it was a business decision to do that deal. And I didn't want to put that off at that moment, um, pass up on it. And then, you know, if we did decide to go out in the Katie later, basically have to pay twice as much to enter the market. So that's, that was sort of what prompted and accelerated the Katie deal. And the memorial thing that, you know, we had been talking to them for a really long time, actually since 2014. And, um, you know, when, when I was looking for other opportunities in underserved markets, like you said, uh, that, that, that's the one that jumped out at me for sure. Well, in, in Midway, the, the developer of that Memorial Green Project is such a huge force in Houston. 
you know, you do one good one with them and then the sky's kind of limit in terms of right. where they could put you. Yeah. They have a lot of projects in Houston, outside of Houston. Um, and they're great. You know what I'll tell you is they're, they're really great partners. Um, they're very tenant friendly. They want, they want to put on, you know, best in class projects. And, uh, so they are really, really good, um, developers to work with. So I've been very, very happy uh, with that. Um, so, you know, and that, that project's a great project and they've got great co-tenants in there and I can't wait for the rest of them to open up. Yeah. I mean, I know we have a Jonathan's The Rub coming. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is that the only other restaurant? That's the only other restaurant. They're the Vine Wine Rooms moving across the street. Um, but that's the, the Jonathan's is the only restaurant. Everything else, um, you know, Cerrone's opening uh, his uh, salon there. And then there's a lot of, there's a Clean Juice and then there's Lamba Spoke and Define is about to open. So uh, there's a lot of stuff that's just right up our alley. Yeah, I mean, a lot of things that kind of capture that healthy living, that younger lifestyle. Yeah, crowd. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's a good fit for you. Yeah. So what what is the status of the Heights build out? When, when roughly do you, I mean, when roughly do you expect to open? Well, so originally, I mean, that, that was a deal that we signed almost a year ago too, right? So these projects, you know, people don't realize how long they really take to get off the ground. Um, when you're, when you're really doing it right, when you're going into a new development. So outside of the Katie project, you know, the Gables, uh, that, that was just dirt and concrete when we started negotiating with them. So even though we opened in 2014, we started negotiating 2012. Um, and then at Memorial, we started negotiating in 2015, signed the lease in 2016, and then opened up at the end of this year. And so with the Heights, it's is very similar. Um, and you know what they're telling me now is it's probably looking like you know April when they're going to give us the space to start construction. So it'll probably be around this time next year that we open. Um, you know, you, you figure four to six months for construction and build out and things like that. Um, so you know, but those things you never know. Uh, there's always delays with construction and permitting and all that stuff. So, all right. So then that means it's been several months or, or almost a year since you signed a lease. I mean, what's next? Do you are you are you in Houston? I mean, I know your your heart is in Austin. You're a Texas grad. Um, I, I feel like this concept would play very well in Dallas. I mean, where, I lived where in Dallas. You... Yeah, I lived in Dallas for a few years before uh, after I graduated. UT. I grew up in Austin, um, and so you know, Whole Foods and farmers markets and farm to table restaurants was sort of the norm there. Um, and and in Dallas, when I lived to da- then I moved to Dallas after I graduated, and I was traveling and I was eating out a lot. And that's where I sort of started to get the idea, right? Because I was seeing some really cool concepts in other parts of the country when I was traveling. And I was wondering, like, why isn't anybody doing this in Dallas or, you know, in Texas? And um, so I started to investigate it a little bit more and do research. And then I uh, moved back to Austin for grad school. And then I wrote the business plan while I was getting my MBA for this and did a lot of research on the industry. Um, and, yeah, I wanted to start in Austin. And I got uh, – you know, listen, there's, there's a hand, Austin's small. It's just, a, it's a small city um, relative to, I know it's technically bigger than San Francisco and, and whatnot by, from a population standpoint, but it's, it's a small city when you, and when you're trying to do business there, you know, look, you're only really dealing with a handful of people. And um, when they don't support you, like you got to move on. And so I, I felt that that's what, what was happening. There's a lot of real estate people in town and look, Austin's such a small city too, that you know, it's not like Houston where, you know, look, I can open on St. Felipe and, you know, realistically I could probably open on, you know, you could open at Kirby and Richmond. Yeah. I could open up two miles away and not really have any issues in Austin. That's not the case. Right. Um, 
it's very there's not there's only a few areas in Austin where you really want to be, and that's where everybody else wants to be too. And so and that and that's chefs from New York and that's chefs from you know San Francisco. And so I'm competing with all these people that have you know James Beards or have other restaurants, and I'm just this kid from school that has a business plan and no restaurant background. And, you know, I would pass on me too. So that's what happened in Austin. And, you know, honestly, I'm a little bitter about it. Um, and so, you know, look, when I came to Houston, I loved it because the climate here in the in business environment, it's just, it's a big city. It just feels like a big city. People want to get deals done. There's a lot of energy. The restaurant scene here is just like awesome. And everybody's super uh, collaborative and, it's not cutthroat and it's not like super competitive and backstab. I mean, it's just awesome. I loved it. I fell in love with it immediately. Um, and so, you know, I think as far as our future goes, we are, and I can't divulge any more details other than uh, we are going to be opening downtown next year as well before the Heights. Um, but that's as much, as much as I can say about that right now. Um, but that, that's sort of something we're, we're squeezing in beyond the Heights. Um, you know, uh, you know, that'll put us at five locations and, you know, I'm going to be very particular on what we do after that. Cause I don't want to oversaturate the market and I don't want to pass up on good real estate because I'm just too eager to open stores. Cause I'm not, I'm very good. We didn't open anything in 2016 cause I thought we needed to sort of slow down and focus on systems and focus on our people and focus on what we're really doing and making sure that the vision's not getting diluted as we open, because I felt like that that was at risk of happening if we if we continue to you know punch the gas. Um, we'll absolutely open in Dallas Fort Worth. We'll absolutely open in Austin. You know, San Antonio I think is an underserved market um, for sure, and it's huge. Um, so there's a lot of those things. We also have a couple of other concepts that we like. So I mean. I, yeah, I could spend the next three or four years in Houston without ever having to, I could open two or three restaurants a year in Houston between Dish Society and some other concepts and never have to go to another city. So, um, you know, we'll just have to see a lot of the stuff's real estate driven. Um, and when good things come about, you know, I, I would like to be in the position to take advantage of them. So that's kind of how I'm, I'm looking to position ourselves. All right. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hit you with a phone book or anything, but, but get, give us a little, a little tease of like, what's the, what's the next concept? The next concept is an elevated gastropub. Okay. So, and again, that's real estate dependent. Um, and then we have uh, sort of a taco concept too that, that we're kicking around as well. So drive through tacos, but that's, yeah. All right. Yeah. That's exciting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like, um, you know, elevated gastropub is like, would be great in the suburbs, right? There's still, there's still craft beer is, is such a big, has become such a big part of, of so many bars and restaurants. I just don't feel like there's anyone that's doing like hay merchant in the woodlands. Right. You know? Right. Right. And I've, I've teased Chris and Kevin, Chris Shepard and Kevin Floyd, the owners of hay merchant about this. Like you should, you should be opening these as fast as you can. Yeah. And they, you know, so if, if somebody, if they're not going to do it, then somebody should, yeah, and you know, g- g- being at, spending time in Katy and Memorial and seeing these things and experiencing the pain. You know, look, Dish Society was born out of my own personal pain for not being able to find this type of food on an, in an approachable way, right? A great place to go eat breakfast every day, a great place to have also have brunch and a, a cool place to have, you know, good coffee, but that also has like that local craft beer or whatever and, and locally sourced, like carefully conscious, you know, you know food, chef-driven food. 
And so that was born out of, out of a need that I thought a lot of people had and that I was personally experiencing. And then this sort of my other concepts are as well is, is, you know, now that I have a family and, you know, three-year-olds dictating our dining decisions and, and what we do on the weekends, like you start to see things in a different way and you start to realize, Hey, there's a lot of, you know, 30 something parents that kind of want some fun stuff to do. And, you know, you start to look at things differently. And so that's where some of these other things have come from. But so we'll see. They might not ever come to fruition. Uh, we might open 100 of them. We never, you just never know. I think, it, again, it depends on the real estate. It depends on the market and um, sort of where we are as a company at, the, at those points. So, All right. Well, we will, we will stay tuned for all of that. <laughs> Don't worry. I'll let you know. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'll, I'll read about it in the Chronicle. Oh. When you're when you're ready to announce, <laughs> um, but Aaron, we are we are running out of time. Um, but it wouldn't be what's Eric eating if I didn't ask you uh, our lightning round questions. Uh, five five easy questions, five short answers. Oof. Okay. All right. What's the first concert you ever went to? Wu Tang Clan in Austin. I was like, I think I was like fourteen. What's the first restaurant you ever worked at? Smoothie Factory in high school? That absolutely counts. Okay. Favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Ooh. Uh, it'd be a tie between Nolan Ryan and Warren Moon, probably. Ah, no, wait. Earl Campbell. I'm going to go Earl Campbell. Michael, is that our first Earl Campbell? I feel like it might be. Yeah, definitely Earl Campbell. I, have, like, I got a signed Oilers helmet on my desk at home. So, yeah. And he went to Texas. And so, yeah, absolutely, Earl Campbell. You're known for your uh, farm-to-table offerings, but what's your... What's your fast food guilty pleasure? Taco Bell all day long. And uh, where's your favorite place to go for a taco? Like a real taco? Yeah. Like you know, a- I like uh, Lucci and Joey's. Uh, it's a little spot off Memorial, kind of by where I live, by the new spot. I, and they have, they have really good tacos. So I'd have to – and I like Torchies too. I like Tacos at Go-Go. They just opened the one next to us in Katy. So in Katy, I'm, I'm surrounded by Torchies and Tacos at Go-Go. And then Lucci and Joey. So I would say those those are my three kind of go-tos that I rotate. So, Aaron Lyons, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, we will follow all the goings on with Dish Society at DishSociety.com, on Instagram at Dish Society. Mm-hmm. You want to plug your personal Instagram? I don't use my personal Instagram. I, you can't, like on Twitter, you can toggle between your personal and yeah. business, but on Instagram, you can't. So I just gave up on my personal. So it's at AS Lyons, but I never use it, but... You can follow me on Twitter. Follow you on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? At Aaron Scott Lyons. And I just do a lot of retweeting of funny stuff. So that's pretty much it. Good. <laughs> and of course, you can follow me on Twitter at E Sandler, on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I will be back next week with Chef Aaron Sandler.